Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody, and thank you for joining us this afternoon for another edition of Midrats. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. And if you are... Uh, joining us live, you have an opportunity to uh, scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That's where you will find the chat room. And if you have some observations you would like to share during the course of the show, that's a great place to put it. We'll be monitoring it throughout the show. Uh, and if you have to run off and take care of some stuff on the honeydew list, getting ready for the holiday season, and you want to catch up on what you missed, or if you want to dig around and listen to the previous episodes, you can get the full archive over at Blog Talk Radio or just take a shortcut and get the free podcast via iTunes or Stitcher. And for today's show, we're going to uh, do something that should have all the navalists in the audience tingling from the tips of their toes to the end of their nose, so to speak. Even before the election, for those that were were listening, uh, a certain number popped up uh, above the background noise. Uh, Then-candidate, now President-elect Trump, put out that he wanted us to move towards a 350-ship Navy. And the President administration, um, uh, the Secretary of the Navy, has uh, one of the things that he has done that most people can applaud him with, that he has fought to, to get numbers where they, they uh, where he would like for them to be. He's on a path above going towards 300. And so there's an entering argument and an opportunity here for the incoming administration to take that starting point and push forward into a period of years to get towards that goal of 300. The big question is, is what are the viable paths to 350 that we could see the incoming administration setting the, the stage for in order for us to progress? You know, what will that fleet look like? How long could it realistically take to achieve? And what would the fleet look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years down the road, if we were able to get all the stakeholders involved to get focused and pushing in towards headed towards that 350 um, ship number. And underlying all that, and as our planet and our nation's national security uh, requirements continue to evolve, we need to look at what in our maritime strategy needs to change and is going to adjust 
to be able to best take advantage of that fleet. Sometimes that looks like cart before a horse, but sometimes that's that where you are. And as we discussed in a, a few mid-rats ago, uh, prior to the founding of our nation, right at the beginning of our revolution, you can look at what Thomas Paine wrote about the Navy and the security, national security requirements to have a strong Navy. And the following paragraphs change and equipment change, but the underlying requirements for a two-ocean Navy like ourselves have really remained the same. And we have a, a great guest on today to discuss this and other related issues. He's a returning guest uh, for us. And that would be Dr. Jerry Hendricks, Captain, United States Navy, retired. He is a senior fellow and the director of the Defense Strategies and Assessment Program over at the Center for the New American Security. His staff assignments when he was on active duty included tours with the uh, CNO's executive panel, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and the OSD Office of Net Assessment. His final active duty tour was as the director of Naval History. His academic background with a degree in political science from Purdue University, a master's degree from the Naval Postgraduate School in National Security Affairs and Harvard University with history, and he received his doctorate from King's College London in War Studies. He has twice been named the Samuel Elliott Morrison Scholar for the Navy Historical Center in Washington, D.C., and was also the center's 2005 Rear Admiral John D. Hayes Fellow. He has held the Marine Corps General's Lemuel Shepard Jr. Fellowship, and he offered the book Theodore Roosevelt's Naval Diplomacy and received a number of awards, including the United States Naval Institute's Author of the Year and the Navy League's Alfred T. Mahan Award for Literary Achievement. And I believe the first time we had Jerry on board was to discuss his book, Theodore Roosevelt's Naval Diplomacy. And I always like to encourage people to reach back and read it. And Jerry, welcome back to Midrats. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Sal. And thank you, Eagle One, as well, for uh, for inviting me on to talk about what I think is a, a really critical number uh, and, and something for the naval strategy community to kind of uh, get in a circle around and, uh, and kick it around a bit, discuss it, and, and try to figure out what it means in the way forward. And it, it's, it's really um, been kind of a shot in the arm. I know you personally, along with, with, with other people, uh, have been an advocate for a larger Navy for, for quite a while now with good justifications behind it. And uh, we've seen for the last decade and a half, you know, rightfully so, uh, our nation has been focused on uh, two land wars uh, in the Middle East, Central Asia, and a few other little uh, firefights hither and yon, very land-focused with a naval component. But uh, and I know we've talked about it uh, here on Midraps on, on a few occasions, uh, but it's really hard to get people to understand the, not just the naval contribution to this, which has been, but the ongoing requirement uh, for the American presence at sea and its allies and that sea blindness that revolved around it. And as we discussed a little bit in, in the pre-show, uh, you know, before the election, it really kind of was a shot in the arm and, and really energized the not of the navalists to hear then-candidate and now President-elect Trump mention that 350-ship point, which is a great opportunity for everybody to, to, to talk about the, the why and the how to get there. And it just kind of kick it off, Jerry, where, what is the background you think that it informed that uh, opportunity to go forward for President-elect Trump and to put the 350-ship marker out there? 
Well, it's a couple things. Um, I actually think there's there's kind of a literary history that goes along with this, uh, meaning that there's there's a, a, a sort of a, a coalescence around that number in the professional literature. And I noticed this in 2008. I had a uh, I was in OSD policy. I had just come out of my aviation uh, 05 command tour and was working on force structure at that time. And and, and I wrote an article in. Um, in proceedings, and, and the reason I did that is I'd been in on a briefing with the OPNAV staff where they had briefed out the requirements for a 313-ship Navy, and I, when I pulled the string on where that requirement came from, um, I found that it was sort of a self-justifying requirement that it had come out of a study that the OPNAV staff had commissioned for one of the FFRDCs uh, to, uh, to do a study on force structure, and it was sort of a self-justification of a number that the Navy thought was achievable at that time. But when I actually pulled the strings on what the COCOMs were requesting and requiring, I came up with something that was a little bit north of 350, about 355 ships in 2008. And so I started to write a series of articles and proceedings and so on about how we could get from where we were, which was a shrinking fleet that was going to get smaller, to try and reverse that trend and get the numbers up. And about the same time that I put out my article, uh, Bob Work released a study at CSBA uh, that uh, gave a path forward to increase the size of the fleet. And then uh, Captain Rubel, then up at the Naval War College, also wrote uh, a major uh, article at the time that talked about the importance of growing a fleet. And so there was this coalescence, this uh, consensus, as it were, uh, where people were all recognizing that we were in a bad place, um, that we were beginning to see an erosion of the uh, the international system that the U.S. Navy had been protecting and promoting for 70 years, uh, and that there was time that we needed to turn that around. And, and yet there wasn't an easy path forward in the sense that we had essentially a flat uh, ship construction acquisition budget, uh, right around $15 billion, and had been there for quite a while. Um, and uh, and so there was a, a desire to kind of get the argument out there for shifting money either within the overall defense budget to give the Navy more money or just find money elsewhere within the Navy, or for that matter, to find perhaps cheaper ships that we could build more of within the, within the cap that we had at that time. And so that you know, began, a, I think, a rather vibrant debate about the way forward. But uh, the reason, and, and so we flash forward eight years now to candidate uh, Trump, and, and he wasn't the only one. I think if you look, uh, you'll see John Kasich of Ohio talked about a larger Navy. You saw Marco Rubio talk about a larger Navy. Certainly Ted Cruz gave a speech in uh, North Carolina that called for a 350-ship Navy. So uh, President-elect Trump, uh, this is, I think, uh, became essentially a standard Republican policy plank that the Navy needed to get larger and that the number that everyone sort of centered around was 350 ships. And, and that's where the argument sits right now. It's, we have a number, but we haven't really had a discussion about what is inside of that number. Well, that uh, raises a couple of questions. One is, um, in one of your works, you talked about 18 maritime regions that, that the United States Navy was, was uh, uh, covering and the, the difficulties of doing that with the size fleet we have. Um, talk a little bit about these maritime regions, if you will, and, and uh, what, what trying to cover all this base with the number of ships we currently have uh, has done to our fleet? Well, 
I went through, when I, I did the review of the, the COCOMs, uh, identified 18 maritime regions, and, and no, I can't, I can't, you know, spill them all out. I, you know, I will almost invariably forget one, and, and then someone will call me on it. But it's pretty easy. You can start, you know, looking at things like the Black Sea, the Mediterranean. There's various zones of that, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, various regions of the Pacific. And each, each one of the COCOMs lays down a request uh, for ships, and they're different types of ships. Um, that they they want to fulfill certain missions. Certainly, like the Gulf of Guinea, off from uh, Africa, you know, has a certain requirement for generally amphibs is is what they request there. Um, and the the uh, the Aden uh, region is another uh, area where you know there's specific types of platforms. But in racking and stacking all those up, is how I identified um, you know the 355 ships. And then when you start going into your deployment pattern, where in most cases, in, in most regions, specifically in the Pacific, it takes five ships to keep one forward deployed, uh, with, a, with the exception of, of uh, aircraft carriers, which are on a different cycle time. You start doing the math out, and it generates out this model of, of around 355 ships. Uh, and so then, then you, you really get into a debate of, okay, are, those, are the COCOMs perhaps asking for the wrong types of ships? Uh, for instance, you know, not everyone can have an aircraft carrier. So are there instances where it's a presence mission where it would be best to have an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer if you're trying to show credible combat power? Or are you really looking for that ultimate switchblade or Swiss Army knife, uh, which is your, your basic LPD amphib that can do everything from, you know, helicopters to a well deck? Exactly what was the requirement? And you really need to go back and give close scrutiny because I think every COCOM would, uh, would like essentially a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier uh, as the answer to most of their diplomatic problems, but that, that perhaps isn't the right answer uh, from, from the actual service they're trying to provide to their region. So I think there's room for a give and take within that, and certainly we've had that ongoing debate over the last eight years. The uh, kind of looking at three things, when when I heard first heard the the number 350, um, that I think will define the ability and the, and the slope for that matter on how we get there. That's national will, money asked per the budget, and the industrial base's physical capacity, you know, but also you know human capital, the artisans uh, that, that you, know, you just can't train somebody in two weeks to, to do the type of welding required in modern construction. Uh, where where do you think we stand in those three areas and the ability to to ramp up, but more importantly, sustain what is going to be a multi-year effort to be able in a, in a cohesive way to, to get towards that number? And of those three, the national will, the, the money in the budget, and the industrial base, which of those three do you think will be the most challenging and require the most um, uh, attention by leadership to sustain? Well, we'll start with that, that last question first. I, I think, quite frankly, you're going to have to address the national will. Um, you know, to go from 272 ships uh, to 350, that's, that's a heavy lift. Uh, that's, a, that's a commitment, and that means that you're going to have a nation that's aligned uh, and understands the, the strategic importance of that number and that they can get behind it because uh, you're going to have to have a, a serious um, investment of resources, and you're going to have to – do some realignment uh, in industrial uh, infrastructure, and so we'll move to that next. Um, essentially, the the major shipyards that we have now, um, uh, you know, have capacity. 
the question really is, is how quickly do you want 350 ships? We can certainly increase throughput in the shipyards that we have right now uh, in Mississippi and in Alabama, up in Wisconsin, uh, in Bath, Maine, uh, you know, in, in Newport. You can increase capacity in each of those yards, but if, for instance, the president-elect would like to achieve 350 in eight years, that's huge. Uh, in fact, that would exceed the capacity of the yards we have now, which is why we would have to look at expanding capacity by either seeing the major companies uh, purchase additional yards or, for that matter, perhaps seeing new smaller companies jump in, uh, perhaps trying to compete on, uh, on smaller variants of the, the ships being built. Um, or even perhaps looking, uh, and this would be the most controversial, uh, looking at uh, foreign suppliers of some classes or models. Uh, those, uh, so that, that's what you want. If you want it quick, you're going to have to break some significant China uh, to get there. Your third question, I think, is really critical as well, which gets into the, uh, the workers, the workforce, the blue-collar workforce out there. And this is one of the things that I find most exciting about this. Um, if you look, for instance, in Marinette, Wisconsin, uh, at the uh, shipyard there that is building uh, the littoral combat ship, uh, what they found is that when they began to expand their capacity to build the, the ships, the large number of them that were planned, that there wasn't uh, enough uh, workers uh, well-trained to do that. They actually went out to high schools and sponsored. This is the, the, the company of the shipbuilder there is uh, Fincantieri, which is an, actually an Italian shipbuilder that has purchased that yard up there. But they went out and sponsored, sponsored vocational training in local high schools throughout the upper Great Lakes region, including over in Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, down in the Illinois, uh, to try and find people who would be interested in becoming welders and pipe fitters and electricians. And so they, they are trying to plant their own seed corn in an order to expand their base. And that's something that you could actually look at throughout the entire Rust Belt region, you know, in states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, you know, states that quite frankly voted uh, for the president-elect in the hope uh, that they would reverse some of their economic fortunes. Uh, you could also see that, um, you know, during World War II, we produced uh, ships along the Ohio Valley and down on the Mississippi. Of course, there's a lot of bridges and things like that. If you actually wanted to produce a, a smaller ship, you would actually have to be aware of uh, design uh, requirements so that you could get out underneath the bridge infrastructure as you go down. But there's plenty of room to expand capacity in the United States, depending on the types of ships that you want to build. And that goes to the types of ships that would make up that 350 ship count. If you're looking for the force now that we have, and let's just call that sort of the legacy force or the standard or the classic force, you know, of uh, BERT-class destroyers, uh, cruisers, uh, aircraft carriers, fast attack submarines, you're really looking at uh, your Atlantic or Pacific coastline. Uh, to be able to produce something. Uh, but if you want to go with things like offshore patrol vessels, littoral combat ships, frigates, uh, or, or even smaller classes of like amphibious ships, then you could look at uh, internal waterways like on the Great Lakes or perhaps in your, your broader river areas. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the mix of ships because that seems to me to be pretty key to what we're going to do. I mean, uh, some of your works, I think you said that we should not build uh, the carriers and should devote or uh, add new carriers, but devote that money to uh, building some smaller classes of ships. And uh, I'm always concerned with the logistics train that we create when we have, uh, you know, if we add, 
we've got 270 some ships now. If we had 80 ships, we've got uh, more need for more sailors, more repair parts, blah blah blah. You know, how would how are we how are we looking at uh, the cost of doing that kind of business, and what mix of ships are we looking at? Well, I mean, the the key point here is, uh, yeah, we had a healthy debate about aircraft carriers and their role in the future. And a lot of that debate, at least my input on that debate, was based on the idea that uh, with a flat defense budget or flat uh, ship procurement budget, which was really around the $16 billion a year, now now we've had a peak up to about $18.5 billion. Uh, but with a flat procurement budget, there, the, the carrier was crowding out the rest of the ships within the fleet. However, um, with the election of, of Donald Trump as president and the House and the Senate going Republican, there is a solid commitment to growing the size of the Navy and increasing its budget. Um, and so the carrier debate is essentially over, um, that uh, we will have a larger Navy and that Navy will include aircraft carriers going forward and there's an assumption built into this that there's going to be additional resources, in fact, a lot of additional resources in order to grow a, f- a fleet, uh, you know, to 350 ships. I could see the Navy, I mean, right now, if we just went back to the Robert Gates budget from 2011-2012, which was the last defense budget, which was based upon a threat and assessment, then you're looking at a Navy budget right around $195 billion. That's a $40 billion plus up over the $155 billion that we're at now, and that 155 is really based on a lot of the sequester that's come into play uh, over the last uh, four to five years. So you're going to see a significant plus up. Part of that money is going to have to go to make the Navy whole. Uh, we've got a, a readiness shortfall. We've got a lot of readiness gaps, so there's a lot of material conditions on the present force. Uh, part of the money is going to have to go to growing the personnel. And then part of the money is going to have to go to increasing not only the ship construction accounts, but also the aviation construction accounts. Because you also got a strike fighter shortfall of about 140 tactical fighters at this point in time. So essentially, if you, know, if you gave us $40 billion more in the Navy budget uh, tomorrow, um, it, would, it would all be gone. Uh, it would be instantly absorbed into the system. Um, and uh, and and it's it's essentially all spoken for going forward at this point in time. You know, it's funny how you 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 mentioned you know the carrier debate's over and it, it, challenges like this can focus the mind. I think in many ways, um, and, and it's hard to escape the argument that uh, the the LCS wars are kind of over as well because if you if you have a goal to ramp up regardless of, of what you may think one way or another, you've got to work with the production lines you have right now. You do the best you can. You maximize what is there. You, you minimize the, the negative parts. But then you have to look towards the future. And LCS itself, we'll see how it works out, but let's go ahead and go with the assumption of a 25-year life. That well, means that uh, – that means it, it, oh, Go ahead. No, let's, let's talk about LCS there. I mean, when, when LCS came out, uh, I was a critic of LCS. Um, didn't really think that there was enough there there within LCS uh, to justify the cost that we were beginning to see. Um, I, I became a quote-unquote supporter of LCS in the, in the sense that it was a live program and we had a hotline and we were yep. starting to move ships through. I also have 
a, a confidence in American sailors to try and figure out what's wrong with ships and get them fixed. And, and you can look historically at things like Perry-class uh, uh, frigates and so on, where we had a lot of problems, including Ticonderoga as well, at, when they first came out. Um, I will I will stipulate now that you know I want to see a movement very quickly to a frigate variant um, uh, as soon as we can. And for those who would say, well, we've got to stop construction LCS, you know, I will listen uh, to any argument for that uh, when you can provide me with the date certain that I can get a new production line up and running. Because we simply could not, for instance, shut down LCS production today and just say this thing sucks and I need to move on um, until I have something else up in line. Uh, you know, we're already at 272 ships trending downwards and we simply cannot stop construction of a hot line uh, just because we're having problems with it in favor of something new that might take us another three to five years to get. And so my my issue with uh, um, my issue uh, with uh, with LCS is that it's it's something I've got. I'll make it work as best I can while I make plans for what comes next. And uh, for you know for those who ask the question of why did I just compare LCS with CG-47? CG-47, when it first came out, first of all, was a DDG, not a CG. We upgraded it simply because of the mission set. And at the time, CG-47 went to sea. She was so top-heavy that during her sea trials, we had concerns about her tipping over. We also had problems with the electrical system on the CGs uh, in the sense that there was too much of an electrical draw for their ability to generate power. We had to actually come up with a completely new electrical system through it. Um, in order to be able to run the spy system at its full capacity. And so virtually every first ship in class that proceeded since the late 1960s uh, has had a GAO report uh, written against it, essentially calling for the termination of the program because the ship was in trouble and was behind schedule or over budget. Um, and in fact, when I was the director of Naval History, we actually did a long-term study of 10 programs and we demonstrated in all 10 programs there was a calling for the termination of the program. It's fairly early in the program life. Yeah, I am. Um, with, the, with the push to the 350, I'm as shocking as it may be for some people, I'm actually in full alignment with that. You've got to make the best with what you have. And, you know, where I was uh, going with the, with the 25 year, just kind of doing the math in my head, is LCS 1 was commissioned in 08. So let's add 25 to that. That gives us 2033 plus or minus. Uh, I, I have a feeling we'll probably, we'll probably have to decommission her a little earlier than that. She's had a rough life. But let's just assume it does the full 25. So if we need to have a replacement for something that's a sub 9,000-pound ship, uh, ton ship, excuse me, uh, at 33, and it's going to be a new design, and let's just assume, being reality what it is, we, we aren't given the ability to license build something fresh and sexy, evolved from something now, so it's going to be a new American design, fresh build, um, sub-DDG-sized ship. If we wanted such a ship to be commissioned in 2033, when should navalists out there start to look at when that design is going to be improved, when they need to cut steel, and when do we start putting money in it in order to get that work started? Because the 2033 is pretty close. Yeah, because, I mean, you're looking at essentially the early 2020s, and I think, quite frankly, the conversation that we're having now about moving from LCS to a frigate upgrade um, is, is really the beginning of that conversation. 
Uh, yes, the focus right now is improving the two hull designs, LCS1, LCS2 design, and trying to get additional lethality on them. But quite frankly, it's opened the window for us to have a conversation about what a real modern frigate looks like. Uh, I think also our conversations with regard to the termination of Zumwalt has opened up the, uh, another conversation about the need for either a new cruiser or a new destroyer and what you know requirements uh, will be levied upon those going forward. We, we seem to be committing to building Arleigh Burks uh, forever. Uh, although we've seen significant evolution in those designs, they are pretty much cubed out. Uh, and certainly from electrical capacity, we seem to be reaching the end of the line on that. So uh, we're, we're going to face some technological challenges across our entire uh, surface combatant spectrum. Uh, and as well as, you know, we're still facing issues with the Ford class and its design, uh, cost overruns, as well as technological challenges with the, the uh, arresting gear, as well as the uh, EMALS aircraft launch systems. Uh, so we've got uh, significant challenges uh, at virtually every class going, except for perhaps the Virginia class, uh, which seems to be performing extremely well. You know, uh, one of your... Uh, uh topics before was the, the the air wing on the carriers also need to be vastly upgraded or or at least the configuration of the aircraft uh, mix needs to be changed you know uh, because we've got very short legged legged aircraft now uh, is that still your view and and uh, i mean I, I know you've talked about bringing back the s3s and stuff but uh, is there some other aircraft we ought to be looking at that has a longer longer range that we should uh, be, be thinking about right now yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, the the key here is the since the carrier debate has ended, is we have to focus on how to keep the carrier relevant or increase its relevance, uh, especially in light of A2 AD, uh, you know, threats that are out there, S300, S400, uh, as well as the standoff uh, cruise missiles that we're we're facing that are are pushing the carrier farther and farther back from from its object or its uh, objectives, um, and so we we've seen that. Um, you know, we've seen the problem with the shrinking air wings, uh, you know, tactical strike distance. Uh, you know, we went gone from about 1,000 nautical miles uh, at the end of the Cold War as the uh, average unrefueled range of your air wing down to just a little under 500 miles on the air wing today, uh, 25 years after the end of the Soviet Union. And so one of the things we should look at is, is how to get range back on board the, the air wing quickly and to maximize the range of the aircraft that are on there. So... Getting the S3 back on there, quite frankly, is not really about range so much as getting something on that can help do anti-submarine warfare protection out and around. As if anyone hasn't noticed, the, the Russians seem to be uh, out and about and prowling uh, in, in backyards of areas that we really don't like them to be um, and, and around aircraft carriers, which are exceptionally vulnerable to uh, uh, you know, 533's torpedoes underneath the keel. So I look at the S3, and there's just shy of uh, 90 S3s that got uh, significant wing life left on them. They're out in the boneyard at Davis-Motham. I'd like to look at what it would take to bring those back out. But the other thing is I would look um, at the, the MQ-25 uh, Stingray, which is the CBARS uh, drone refueler uh, that we're looking to bring on board, uh, look at to make sure that the design of that is maximized to help the air wing, and, and by that I would say that looking at uh, having a uh, refueler that can have enough uh, give, fuel give within it, 
to be able to fully refuel two F-35 Charlies at their maximum distance, hence doubling their distance. Uh, so uh, that, that works out to be about uh, just a little shy of 20,000 pounds of give at about 550 miles from the carrier. Um, so I would start looking at you know, a, a refueling design with that, that that would have that type of capacity. If we could get uh, five to seven of those MQ-25s on the flight deck, then you begin to build up a significant strike package that can have a range in excess of 1,000 nautical miles, and, and then you are able to get the carrier back into business. I would also hope that, quite frankly, the MQ-25 design uh, would also have an ability to evolve uh, to perhaps become a striker, that, in fact, uh, that design might have some characteristics of penetrating strike um, that uh, would allow it um, to evolve as unmanned technology comes and becomes more mature to be able to take on that mission and, and do it in a robust fashion. Yeah, I was a uh, a big fan of the decision with the with the C-bars, M225, moving forward with the tanker version to give us an opportunity to, to let skippers and sailors get their hands on it, see what works, see what can be done better, what was perhaps overlooked in the process, make it better, and then transition to more challenging uh, warfare areas as it goes forward. You're talking about the F-35 Charlie. Um, a couple of things interesting working in the background while we're talking about the air wing, and, and we've discussed before with you as well the, the, the tragedy of the fact that we've lost the ability of what we developed in the Cold War, which is an air, ring, air wing with some significant reach for the same reason that we're looking to, to get additional range out of it now. But uh, Canada recently canceled their F-35 and is going to uh, replace them with Super Hornets, uh, if the reports are correct and follow-through is done with. Uh, I know in the last few weeks there's been discussions the Navy's going to do additional Super Hornet buys uh, to, to bridge us through some uh, F-35 uh, assumptions that may not play out numbers-wise um, and for some legacy Hornets. And that leads into the Super Hornet itself, the replacement for that. And given some of the challenges we've had with uh, uh, perhaps too optimistic views of technology risk, uh, that when we look at a replacement for the F-18, if it make assumptions it's going to be manned and you're going to need it in significant numbers, have you been hearing um, good discussions from the aviation side of the house about a manned replacement for the F-18 and what type of criteria they are looking at uh, updated from what we saw a few years ago? Yeah, there's plenty of conversation. I, th I think, you know, the, it's interesting there's two sides of this. You know, you had Secretary of the Navy Mavis has come out and said that F-35, uh, Charlie would be the last manned aircraft uh, procured by the Navy uh, for use on the carrier. Um, uh, and then you listen to Naval Aviation flag officers talk about the need for an FAXX, and it's very clear that that would be a manned aircraft from their perspective going forward as a replacement for E's and F's. I think one of the things that we're looking at right now, uh, and we just saw this with this recent test of an F-35B that was able to essentially uh, target or provide targeting for uh, a standard missile launch off from a, off from a surface ship is that we need to look at combinations of, of uh, legacy aircraft and the new frontline aircraft like the 35s uh, that we can use in different combinations. So 
if you've got 20 F-35 Charlies on an aircraft carrier flight deck and they're being backed up by uh, 24 uh, FA-18s, E and Fs, uh, those ENFs could, in fact, even though they're not able to penetrate perhaps into the, uh, the A2AD environment, they can provide uh, weapons uh, for the F-35 Charlies who are moving forward uh, who can command launch uh, perhaps off the wings of, of, of aircraft that are, are lagging farther behind. Uh, so it's different combinations where we could also see unmanned aircraft serving a, a similar role. But there is a desire on the part of uh, the naval aviation community to get another airplane beyond E's and F's uh, that will probably be manned and have some characteristics, stealth-like characteristics, uh, as well as uh, more, uh, hopefully in a more cheaper version or variant than what we're seeing with the F-35Cs, so we can purchase them in numbers. And certainly if you go to a 350-ship Navy, and I would state that the last time we had 350 ships, which was in 1998, in the first quarter of 98, uh, we also had 12 aircraft carriers at that time and 11 air wings. Then you're, you're looking at growing the size of the naval aviation community going forward. Um, there is one other thing I wanted to mention about the F-A-18Es and Fs. Boeing is testing a conformal wing tank that actually sits on top of the, the wing of the, of the Super Hornets that actually has the ability to extend the range of Super Hornets outward uh, by an additional uh, 300 miles, I think, was the last thing that I saw. So you're looking at taking the Hornet out to nearly 800 miles uh, on internal fuel with that conformal fuel tank. Um, and then if that gets matched up with a tanker, the Hornet's going to be able to go a, long, a longer distance. And so all of the air wing right now has got some opportunities to, to increase its range. 35C comes off the line with a longer range than the Hornet, and the E's and F's um, also... Uh, are looking at some additional changes on them that'll that'll change their capacity. I, I'm going to go back to a logistics question, but uh, it seems to me that there's been a lot of discussion about whether the C2 uh, COD aircraft should be replaced by the uh, by the Osprey. And I, you know, given the shorter legs of the Osprey, I'm a little curious as to why. Uh, is there a future for the C2? Should the C2 be retired and replaced, or is there is there uh, some reason to, uh, to to really look to the Osprey? Well, uh, yeah, I took a I've taken a briefing on the Osprey as COD, and it's interesting because right now, you know, the C2 flies to the carrier, it lands, and it disgorges whatever cargo it has, uh, and then uh, you have either small boats or helicopters that then take uh, smaller objects, and they can take them out to the other uh, ships within the force and, and distribute it that way. Whereas the Osprey would have the capability to essentially hit the carrier, but it also have the ability to land on, uh, you know, amphibs, LPDs, L, uh, LSDs, um, and it could also uh, do landings on even some of the larger combatants. Uh, and so you were able to more effectively distribute. The, the issue of, of what can fit, though, um, in the, the bay of the Osprey is really the big challenge. Um, and, uh, and, and so we need to look at that because, I mean, the, your, your baseline is, you know, can it haul the engines, your replacement engines, or engines in canister, uh, I think is a, is a major challenge that we have going forward. Uh, just to make sure that it meets those minimum requirements, both on weight and everything, you got to, uh, you know, the, the the concern is is that it's the convenient answer without being the right answer, and I think we have to we have to ask that question to make sure we're answering it. I uh, 
was not on my original question list, but it just popped in my mind because uh, it, it's something near and dear to, to both of our hearts, I believe. Uh, while we're looking at it growing to 350 ships, and it's it, you know everybody wants to talk about the carriers that are great, and, and I agree with you that the, the, the Virginia class is a great submarine class, and if we can build more of them, Lord knows we can't have enough heavyweight torpedo capability out there. Um, but there's an important part of our fleet that, that uh, we've talked on mid-rats now and then that really is important and is often overlooked. I call it the, the unsexy but important part of our fleet. Not talking about amphibs here because I know we both think amphibs are sexy. We don't care what everybody else says. But we're talking about our command ships that are incredibly old but are also incredibly valuable. Uh, hospital ships that, uh, you know, when we had you on a few years ago talking about influence squadrons and, and the things that, that some of these ships can do as they show the flag uh, creates positive effects well beyond uh, their value. Also, a replacement for our PCs uh, that I don't think that requirement is going to go anywhere in the future. And, of course, our, our reconstituted riverine forces that we just got back a little more than a, a decade ago. As we look towards 350, and if we, we shake out some more money, especially for those first two ships, uh, the, the, the command ships and the hospital ships, how do you see the ability of maybe folding that into a shipbuilding program that could just give us decades and decades of additional value? Well, you know, I think that there's a potential, I mean, there's potential designs out there that we could build on onto uh, and modify without having to go back and, and essentially start from scratch on those. Um, the MLPs and AFSBs that are being built um, out there, you know, have a, a lot of adaptability. Um, you could look at even AMFIB designs uh, and find uh, adaptability out of those AMFIBs designs for, uh, uh, for hospital ships and command ships. And, and quite frankly, you could go and look at other commercial variants that are out there um, that, are, uh, that are available uh, through other commercial shipyards uh, that and, and this is another aspect of this I think that we would have to look at uh, going forward is essentially growing the commercial shipping industry in the United States. Uh, 350 ships with a he healthy demand, I think, that gets out of just your standard base. To, to the base of your question, though, is uh, which is, you know, are these things important and should they be included in the 350-ship Navy design? Absolutely. Uh, command ships, uh, ships like tenders, um, and the hospital ships all serve critical functions. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we've, I've described it in the past as part of influence operations, uh, you know, as a derivative off of Mahan's work. Uh, and, and I think we have to make those types of investment because certainly nothing uh, says that, you know, that the United States appreciates you, is concerned about you, is here to help you, like a hospital ship that shows up after a major uh, earthquake or tsunami or, or, or any of those types of activities to be able to come in and do basic surgeries, inoculations, and help the local, uh, local population with very basic health care issues that, quite frankly, that won't be serviced unless something like that shows up. And certainly we see our competitors. Uh, the Chinese have built a hospital ship and are beginning to move around um, the region um, and, and, and because they see the importance of that, the way it's perceived by the local populations. And so there's a competition that's beginning in, in the area of hospital ships. Uh, so I think we have to... Um, uh, we have to make that uh, that that uh, acquisition, um, and you know the thing about the AFSBs and MLPs are those are hot lines as well. Those are things that have been in production, uh, and it's something that we could easily build on top of and make uh, derivatives of, um, and it also keeps an industrial capacity going on the West Coast. 
uh, that uh, in, and, and that's something that's critical to understand is hotlines are important. Um, a trained uh, worker base is important. It's not something you want to see evaporate uh, after you get these, uh, these first ships uh, created and built. You want to make sure that there's something that's flowing in behind that to keep that all together. Well, um, I think we've kind of danced around it, but let's talk a little bit where this money's going to come from. I know that at one point you were suggesting that if the if the Navy's shipbuilding budget had just been adjusted for inflation over the last 15 years, they could they could afford to go forward. Uh, is it your feeling uh, now that the the change administration is going to free up all this money that we we hadn't seen and we don't have to worry as much about just to, just keeping pace with our inflation and uh, or, or is there something I'm missing here? Well, I mean, first of all, I, 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 I got into an interesting debate uh, with one of our sometimes listeners on this uh, program uh, who was much more informed on economics than I was and uh, got into this on, I, I can't remember if it was Facebook or Twitter, and, and I found myself quickly in over my head when it gets into economics. Uh, and so the question as to where the money's going to come from uh, quite frankly, I don't. I've never worked in OMB, and I, I don't quite understand, you know, where it comes from. I've I've written some in the past about entitlement reform, and revenue enhancement, and closing loopholes, and I'm open to all those types of things. What I do understand is generally the round numbers of what it's going to take. And in conversation with people, um, both on Capitol Hill on staffs, as well as people in and around the various different campaigns. Uh, is that uh, there is a strong desire to set aside the Budget Control Act uh, sequester caps uh, and, and do a significant increase in defense spending. And, uh, and when I say significant, you know, in excess of $100 billion a year in uh, that, that type of significant. Uh, certainly, President-elect Trump has talked about growing the size of the Army. Uh, he's talked about increasing the size of the Air Force. He's talked about in size, increasing the size of the Navy and the Marine Corps. And so there's a, there's a healthy assumption in, based on conversations with the Hill that uh, they're going to start blending money into the defense budget and increasing that. I found it interesting, as anyone who watched the, the news reports this past week, that Secretary Mavis was directed by Secretary of Defense Carter to um, – meet a bogey of, of cutting the Navy's budget by $17 billion, and, and the Navy did not. In fact, the Navy turned in a budget which was an increase of $40 billion over the previous uh, over its previous goal uh, because and Secretary Mavis made some statement that uh, there's no indication that the new administration is going to be interested in cutting the number of ships, but in fact will be interested only in adding to them, and that he found it to be a worthless exercise uh, to essentially uh, turn in a budget that cut the size of the Navy. So I think everyone sees the trend line going, uh, that, uh, that you're going to look at an increase in money. Um, no, I can't answer the question about where that money is going to come from. Um, in, a, in, a, in a budget that's you know, well, you know, almost $2 trillion to, uh, overall budget, uh, I cannot believe that there's not money there. And nor can I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to state just looking at trend indications we're seeing right now in the stock market and other aspects of the economy that we're starting to see, a growth in the economy, hopefully in excess of the 2% of GDP growth that we've seen in previous few years, uh, that would also signal increased revenues into the federal treasury. So I'm, uh, I'm confident that there will be money. I just can't tell you exactly where it's going to come from. And with the uh, – just sticking our toe a little bit into politics here, but it's important for this discussion. Um, and 
Uh, I have to apologize to the listener. I don't know the West Coast names as well as they're the East Coast names because uh, except for a two-year period, I was an East Coast sailor and an East Coast guy. I just know the East Coast better. But the outgoing Congress, when you look and you think about the Navy on the East Coast, because seniority matters. It matters a lot to make things happen. Um, Randy Forbes in Virginia will not be coming back to the next Congress. That's up in the Virginia area. In northeast Florida, around the Mayport, NAS Jacksonville area, Andrew Crenshaw, uh, he is retiring from, from Congress. And the other representative in the area, Corrine Brown, she was defeated um, in the election and will not be coming back either. So at least in the East Coast Navy centers of significant influence, uh, you're going to have representatives by really junior personnel. So when you look at the incoming Congress, Jerry, who are some of the uh, of either party, some of the, the names that people should be listening for, uh, perhaps they should be doing a Google search on to keep track of, and where do you see in the new Congress uh, the navalists out there will be able to look for the support on the Hill that they want? That's a good question, and it's also a question that's fraught uh, with uh, uh, with, uh, with with issues. If if I if I start rolling out names and I miss a That's name, fair. there's always a challenge on that. I think that you've got a, a you know it, it is unfortunate to see Congressman Forbes leaving because he's been a great champion uh, for uh, for Navy and and its issues. Uh, you know, Representative Duncan Hunter uh, of, of San Diego, I think, is is going to be in play. Uh, you know, certainly uh, Chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator McCain. Uh, a retired Navy captain himself uh, is uh, is going to be a strong champion and certainly a skeptic uh, going forward, uh, wanting to make sure that there's meat on the the bones of this 350 ship Navy, uh, as well as someone who has a deep interest in naval aviation issues. So I think there's going to be more than enough leadership and more than enough interest uh, in the new Congress. Um, and I think also uh, I will say that I'm kind of interested. There's a new congressman just come in out of Wisconsin. Uh, name's Mike Gallagher. Uh, he has an interest in the, the, the Marinette shipyard up there, but he's also a multi-tour uh, combat Marine uh, with uh, multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was just elected in this, uh, in this last election and has already demonstrated a really great appreciation of, uh, of shipbuilding issues. Only question is, of course, we, we have to wait until we see them sworn in uh, to get a sense of where they're going to go on committees uh, before we get a, a, a good idea of who's going to be the players and who will be the leaders and leading voices in the next Congress. But I will tell you that shortly after the new year, when this new Congress gets sworn in, we'll see the rack and stack of the committee structure, and at that point in time we'll get a, a better sense of, of who's coming and who's going. Uh, one of the one of the problems that that uh, I think we've talked about here quite a bit is that when we build ships, sometimes it, it seems like a horse, you know, like the camel's a horse uh, designed by a committee. Uh, who's going to hold the Navy's feet to the fire on trying to 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 do what the uh, sub force has done with the Virginia class submarines that they they're not constantly tacking on some expensive add on to to the ships that uh, seems to increase the costs disproportionately is there is there a, a force out there a person out there a congressman someone who who's capable of doing that sort of thing yeah i i really until we get into committee structure i'm not going to be able to to give a, a good sense of that uh, eagle one it's it's just it's going to be up in the air we'll we'll see how it is once the committees are formed um, uh, but uh, the the one thing I will say, and this is the reason why uh, Forbes' departure from the House is 
is uh, is important to note is that um, he really had done a lot of homework on on just those types of issues, and certainly there was probably no one well, was a stronger voice on, for instance, the Ohio class replacement program and the importance of freeing up funding and getting that going. He he had done the nug work to kind of look at that, and I'll be looking to see who emerges to take that role, someone who personally, uh, and not just depending on staff, but personally takes on to, to master the issues associated uh, with the Navy and, and uh, the intricate requirements of its various different ships and aircraft. Early on in the show, Jerry, you mentioned um, something that I think is a, is a great conversation, and just this topic alone we could spend at least an hour talking about. But when you mentioned the, the, the high-low mix, um, I was thinking on the on the low side, there's a lot of misperceptions out there, and I'm going to use one of our favorite boogie bears of the last uh, uh, few months here to, to make my point. As people think of the low mix, they think small ship, small capability, but um, let's talk about the Russian Navy a bit. Uh, what's getting the headline are, are some of their hulking but deadly um, Cold War leftovers, some of which are almost museum pieces. But when you look at their new con- construction, smaller ships that are optimized for, for lack of a better phrase, a regional power or even a coastal power, their corvettes, yeah. um, they have signif- they're very toothy. They're very significant in capability. They're modern. Um, I, I would offer anybody who's sneering should go on YouTube and look at the video of those operational units inside the ships. Look at the, the officers. Look at the men. Look at the condition of these new construction ships. This isn't your father Soviet Navy we're talking about. That there are – you can put a lot of capability on ships. I, I believe they sacrificed range for a fair bit of that. But when you look at some of the modern units – produced by the Russians and um, their ability on a broad spectrum to be competent in a variety of warfare areas. Uh, are, are there a few of the things that you're seeing other countries do that really gets your interest you would want us to look at as we, we look at future types of ships that we would want to build? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a great point. I mean, and you remember uh, from back in back in the day, and, and the amount of attention that we would pay on on smaller combatants like OSA one, OSA twos, with uh, uh, you know, with uh, with uh, sticks missiles on them. You know, that's an awful lot of tooth on a very small platform. Uh, and you're starting to see uh, different countries are making those types of investments. I mean, really, the cruise missile um, has you know fundamentally changed the way warfare is, it looks. One of the things that you have to look at is the balance of what you're going to invest in essentially the survivability of your platforms uh, versus what you're going to invest in the weapons on those uh, on those platforms. A lot of the other countries in the world, quite frankly, don't make investments in survivability. They, their, their ships are, are extremely fragile, um, but they have a lot of weapons. And so as we go forward, you know, the idea of marrying up um, you know, platforms, smaller, lighter platforms, but carry a, a more hefty armament load, uh, that can really complicate, uh, you know, the war planning of, of your competitor uh, is something you want to look at. Now, one of the challenges we, the United States, have is the fact that, you know, we have to go a long distance uh, to be anywhere close to where our competitors are, be it Russia or, for that matter, China. Uh, and so smaller combatants generally don't have the range to be able to do that. However, married up with oilers, tankers, tenders, um, then you, those become things that can really extend the range of smaller combatants. And I think that if you look at that high-low mix, which is one of three, I mean, you know, you could build the classic model or you could build 
essentially a, a submarine-emphasized model going forward, or you could go after a high-low mix model. But if you want to look at high-low mix, then you're going to have to look at uh, enabler platforms, which I think comes back to your tenders, oilers, and other types of resupply vessels that can get smaller, cheaper platforms that are perhaps uh, have more lethality, but get them forward and get them into the fight. One of the one of the questions that uh, I think has kind of been posed in the in the chat room has to do with the asymmetric threat that we we see in in, in areas of restricted uh, maneuvering, like uh, Strait of Hormuz and uh, um, some of the waters off uh, the in the South China Sea, which can be restricted in, in maneuverability space. Um, what what type of ship should we have to respond to? We can't just rely on on the uh, the DDGs to do all the work. Is there is there another group of of uh, anti uh, fast uh, attack craft that we ought to be looking at? Well, I mean, again, you got a hotline going down uh, with uh, Austal and Mobile right now that are building joint high-speed vessels or, or whatever we're calling those these days with the, the renaming conventions. Uh, you know, JHSV is about $120 million a piece. You could strap a, a lot of missiles on the top of that and some radars, and, you know, boom, you've got pretty much an instant Hubei uh, that can operate in, in uh, some of those restricted waters. There's also a number of designs. I think uh, my colleagues, uh, Brian Clark, Brian McGrath, uh, are participating in one of these alternate force structure studies that we're hoping to see out where they're calling, uh, from what I understand, for some offshore patrol vessels, uh, essentially OPV, you know, smaller than uh, even LCS, uh, that could get out there that we could look at additional, uh, you know, armament on that could, again, complicate it. The key is getting costs down and ship numbers up, and I think that we've got some options for things that we have in production right now and options for things that we could bring into production fairly quickly. Gary, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, about platforms and, and various capabilities. I wanted to back up a bit and um, talk about a little bit of a bigger pixel item, but it has a little detail in it as well. Um, you, know, you can go back to the time of Felicities that everybody wants to talk about the Peloponnesian War recently, which is great. Uh, I've enjoyed the, uh, some good work that's come out recently on it. But when you go back to then, to even the most recent wars, uh, World War One centenary has been a great opportunity to, to talk about this again. People have always assumed that the next war is going to be short. It's going to be short, it's going to be violent, it's going to be decisive, and then everybody will go forward. And uh, the, the problem people have is when all of a sudden that we'll be home for Christmas turns into a five-year conflict. And uh, one of the things that has always concerned me, and uh, I think a, a great template to use would be the... Uh, the uh, misunderstood ASW battle of the Falklands War that has to do with that we have a lot of weapons and capabilities that we put on our ships, but we don't have much of a bench. There's little sustainability there for when, when, when skippers and their sailors find themselves in a hostile environment, they're going to shoot, shoot, look, then shoot, then look again. And uh, you, you run out really short. Um, as we talk about distributed lethality, we talk about the reality of, of wars taking longer than a couple of months usually. Uh, where do you see the uh, in this flush for 350-ship Navy that we make sure and build the, uh, build the ammunition lockers behind it with anti-ship cruise missiles and perhaps a little more diversity and anti-submarine weapons than we have right now uh, in case we do have something that requires shooting for a 
a little longer than people may presume? Oh, you know, that's a great question. Um, you know, we we shifted out of the warehouse mentality uh, about midway through you and I's careers um, to the idea of sort of just-in-time production of, of weapon systems, and we saw that that almost bite us in the rear end in the early days of uh, Iraq. Uh, we had ex- gotten rid of a lot of tomahawks uh, shooting up into Afghanistan 2001-2002, and Iraq rolls around, and uh, you know the Air Force comes calling, asking for some tomahawks from the Navy, and we had to try and get a hotline up and going to get us some more tomahawks into the system. Uh, you know we're we're pretty much out of harpoon now, and I think if you look at our torpedo inventories, they're down. One of the things I think you have to look at because you're right, everyone expects you know short victorious wars, and then you know you know history has a way of surprising you uh, with a longer campaign. And I, I think really if you look at the sea control strategy behind uh, distributed lethality. That really is is uh, looking at a longer campaign strategy going forward. So, you know, with that strategy comes a desire and a requirement that we have to build up uh, and warehouse additional weapons capacity uh, that we can draw upon in case this thing, uh, the next one, isn't over in six weeks or even six months. Uh, did a war game a few years ago while I was still on active duty where we began the game at uh, D plus 180, six months into a war, and what we found with the game participants is that uh, you know it was a very fragile supply line, uh, and that quite frankly, if you lose a couple supply ships uh, in that process uh, to attrition, uh, suddenly a lot of your logistics assumptions break down fairly quickly. So I think uh, I think you know trying to build up additional capacity in infrastructure as well as in your supply chain is, is probably the wise thing to do. And, Jerry, that brings us to a very, very quick, very informative um, hour. I uh, really want to uh, say thank you for taking time out of your Sunday to come join us today. And, and, and for the listeners, uh, besides uh, stalking the CNAS website uh, to, to see what's going on, what are you working on right now over the course of, besides getting ready for the holiday seasons, of course, over the course of the, the, the next few months, people can keep an eye open for, and uh, where can they best see your work? Well, uh, literally at this moment, I'm, I'm staring at about 14 steaks that I'm about to put on the grill, so that in, in the immediate 30 minutes <laughs> will be my next thing. Um, I'm working on a, a study we'll be right over. That's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a companion piece to the retreat from range piece that I did on the carrier air wing. I'm actually looking at the heavy bomber right now, and the history and development of the heavy bomber and its characteristics as a means of examining the decision to look at B-21 and the production run that we're about to do on the B-21 bomber to ask the question, uh, you know, does that make sense? And, and if it does, does the 80 to 100 bomber acquisition plan that seems to be in place, does that make sense in light of the, the history behind that? Uh, so that, and then uh, after that, I'm doing an unconstrained look at uh, – at essentially the idealized force. You know, we always had that that, uh, that assertion that if we could build a military today uh, based upon what we have, it would look nothing like the, the force that we already do have. And, you know, the idea of divorcing yourself from the legacy force and, and building towards an idealized force. Um, I'm going to look at, at what that, that whiteboarded military force of today, if we could start from scratch, would look like and then and then see how we build a bridge between the legacy force today and the one we want in the future. That is beautiful stuff. Uh, really look forward to looking at it, Jerry. And, uh, again, thank you very much for coming on. And I hope you and your family have a great Christmas season. Same with you, Sal, and thank you, Eagle One, as well. Um, always a pleasure talking to you, Jerry. Thanks a lot for coming on. All right. Bye-bye. 
Yes, sir. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRaps. And please join us next week. Uh, where our guest is going to be Lieutenant Jack McCain, United States Navy, uh, who is, uh, we're going to discuss some work he's been doing on the Angola, Namibia, South African border war at the tail end of the Cold War. Uh, there's actually some very, very interesting observations you can gather for what we're engaged in right now. And uh, we're going to have them for the full hour. So please join us again next week. And until then, I hope everybody has a great Navy day. Cheers. Molly wrote a neat reply to Irish Paddy O, saying Mike Maloney wants to marry me, and so leave the strand and pick a billy, or you'll be to blame. For love has fairly drove me silly, hoping you're the same. credit card bill.